The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, uh, we are in the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is like, uh, if you kind of open up your Bible, like midway point and to the left a little bit. So kind of here and then left. We're in Psalm 53 this morning. Um, big numbers are the chapters, small numbers are the verses. If you're not familiar with what, um, how this whole thing is set up, because I get that it's very confusing. Um, the way we are looking at this is that as a, in the summer, we go through the Psalms, so we just kind of go through them one at a time and see what God has to say to us. We are in Psalm 53, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we are going to pr- read this, we're going to pray, ask for God's help, because we need his help to understand his word together, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 53. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, there where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against him. He put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this together, I pray that you would help us. Uh, This is a sobering psalm to read, and Lord, I pray that not only would we find ourselves in it, but that we would experience your power and your salvation because we are in it and you're with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we are going through these psalms, Psalm 53, uh, 52, 53, 54 and 55, these four psalms, uh, we are picking up a, a bit of a, a, a pattern that they are all um, about opposition, uh, opposition in one way or another. We uh, are calling, kind of calling this the Jesus mixtape of opposition. I don't know if we can throw that up there. Jesus mixtape of opposition. Last week, we looked at how Jesus is with us when we're opposed with lies. And this Sunday, we're looking at Psalm 53, this uh, dynamic of being opposed with unbelief, and next week, threats and betrayal. But this week, as we're looking at being at, at Jesus' mixtape on unbelief, what does it mean for Jesus uh, when he thinks about our unbelief? Because we're not really talking about our unbelief towards each other, like, I don't believe you, you know, that sort of thing. This psalm is really about what does God think, what is, what's, the, what's the tape deck that God puts in his, for all you people who don't know what tape decks are, you know, you, you, it's a, two circles, put them in. What song does God put into his play- playlist when he thinks about our unbelief? And what's going on in this psalm is, this is what God does. This is what the song that God sings when he thinks about our unbelief. And while it can feel sobering, there's a song of grace going on in this song that is, um, you have to see the dark side to see the light side. And um, it kind of relates to the question of, why is this church here? We sing a lot. If, you know, if you've been, been here for a few minutes, you know we sing a lot. We love to sing. We give out CDs of songs. We talk about songs all the time. We sing a lot. 
And this whole church really happened because five years ago, five, ten years ago, a group of us got together and we realized we'd been captured by the reality of Psalm 53. There's something true about us in Psalm 53 that had been miraculously reversed in this song of grace that Jesus sings over us. When he looks at our opposition to him, when he looks at our stubbornness and just kind of the junk of our lives, there's a song that Jesus sings. And then now here we are this morning singing more songs about him, singing about who he is because of what this song represents. Because while God is being opposed by our hearts in many ways, that doesn't push God off. So here's what we're going to do. If we're saying this church is here because of this song of opposition that Jesus is singing, there's a bit of a story behind this song, a story contained in the Word. And so what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the story of this song and see how God has changed our hearts from opposing Him to loving Him. So if you're looking for the main point of this song or this psalm, only God can save us from our heart's rejection of God. Put that slide up. Only God can save us from our rejection of God. And we're going to look at this psalm in three parts. We're going to look at the heart, the eye. Can we put that slide up? Only God can save our heart's rejection of God. We're going to look at the heart, the eye, and the gift. Sort of trying to think of like what are the headings of these, the verses for this song. We're going to start out with verse 1 as we kind of look at this very sobering psalm. We're going to check out the heart. You might call this the bad news part of the song. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Now, the thing about Psalm 53 is that it is a, basically a carbon copy of Psalm 14, almost as though God wanted to make sure that we got the point and that it drove it home. So we're going to kind of refer to Psalm 14 as well as we kind of move along, but they're basically carbon copies of each other. So Psalm 53.1, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, before we kind of go off on a rant about Richard Dawkins and all these atheist guys that are in the news all the time and say, ah, here's who he's talking about, let's not skip past the first word that he uses to describe who he's talking about here, right? He says, he doesn't say all those scientists. (laughs) That's not what he says. He says, the fool which is actually a, a biblical category that's a little less like all those atheist people who teach science classes or math classes or whatever. It's actually a, a term that is a little bit more kind of mundane and regular for our regular life today. The Bible actually, when it uses the word fool, it's not talking about people who are stupid. It is somebody that is fixed on the correctness of their own opinion, which flies in the face of the established moral order. Here's what we translate. The fool thinks they know better than God. The fool thinks, I've got this world figured out. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Actually, God kind of messed up, and I've got it better. You can see this in Proverbs 18.2, the fool, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but, his own, but only in expressing his opinion. This is not a comment on politics today, right? But that certainly maps on, right? Proverbs 12.15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A fool thinks that he's got it all together, thinks he's got the roadmap for life figured out, and God, I don't need you. Actually, I don't like you, and you don't exist. So that that, that is a a picture of what the psalm is aiming at, is not saying all those people who deny God, they're stupid. 
It's actually something more kind of at a heart motivation level. People who would say, you know what, God, I've got this figured out and I don't need your help. So that's why God is going after this and saying, if you think that you can manage your life and remove God from the picture, you can view your life and God does not have to factor in, then you are a fool. That's what the psalm has in view. It's similar to, excuse me, when I drive my kids to Five Guys to go get lunch, and if my kids were to say the entire time, I don't need dad, dad doesn't exist, well, you're not getting a Five Guys, you're not getting a burger without your dad. At a functional level, that's how we kind of all tend to operate, right? God doesn't exist because he doesn't make sense. Well, that's using the tools of logic that you did not create to deny the creator of those things that he did create, right? Where do we get our sense of goodness, right? Sometimes we'll say, God doesn't exist because all these bad things have happened to me. How could a God, good God exist when all these bad things have happened? Well, if you don't have a good God in your world, uh, there's no meaning to goodness or badness, right? There is a real problem that you've got with how you think about the world around you. What, what does it mean for God to have created beautiful things, right? If there's beautiful things in the world, that, beautiful, lovely faces this morning. How do we think about beauty if God doesn't exist, right? A fool will say, well, it's the science of how the face all kind of lines together and all these dynamics, but I don't need God in the picture. Or what does a beautiful life look like? I don't need God to design that. For me, I can make it up on my own. How do we think about justice? Were the shootings in El Paso last week wrong. If there is no God, there's no way to determine if they were wrong or not. You see, this is what is going on here at the heart level is saying, I don't need God to figure out the world around me. And I think God got it wrong. You hear the insanity of that statement, right? God doesn't exist and I don't like him. God doesn't exist and he got it wrong. God doesn't exist and I can do this better than him. That's this insanity of what the, the Bible pictures as our heart and our relationship with God. This is how we're born into the world, thinking about the world. So if, I don't know if you have familiarity with the Bible and you can figure out what Romans 1 is, but Romans 1 over here, now the verse will be on the screen, that Romans 1 picks up this and, picks, and, and paints it like this for us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now pick up this. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Does that sound a lot like... The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. By his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. When you go up and see the Franconian notch and you see the beauty of the world around you, that is God painting a picture. That is his billboard to say, I've got it, I know how to do this, and I can do it really good. And the things that have made, for those, for they are without excuses, this is talking about all of us. For although they knew God, right, we are born with the tools to know God. We inherently understand that God exists. We do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, for they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal God, for the immortal God of images resembled mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Right? This is this is how the Bible paints our picture, our hearts. This is the heart. This is the bad news that we are 
by nature. We're born into this world thinking, I've got this on my own. God, um, God, thank you for the tools, but you didn't make them, right? This is kind of like, have you ever seen like a kid in the pool where he is sitting on top of a floaty ball and being like, I'm magically floating. You're like, bro, no, you're not. You're sitting on top of the ball. No, there, there's no ball underneath me. That's how the human heart thinks about God by nature, right? That's how we, we, are, we are given, we are created with all of these abilities to understand who God is, and we use those tools to have God's name, right, like a craftsman tool that's got all God's names on them to create a world in our own hearts where, God, you don't exist. This is, um, this last week I was at, um, well, when we, when, before we get there, before we get off the hook on this, right, and we start saying... Uh, all these people who deny the existence of God. Let's remember, this is a category of foolishness. It's not an intellectual uh, sign on the door, the atheist department. Because <laughs> there's actually two, two, two kind of dynamics of atheism in view here. Can we throw this up? There, are, there is the view that there is the intellectual atheism, you might call it. And then there's functional atheism, right? Intellectual atheism says, I don't believe God exists, and I'll figure life out on my own. Functional atheism, I do not like, I do not live like God exists and will fill in for what he can't do, right? The fool, it's not the intellectual says in his mind there is no God. It is the fool says in his heart there is no God. And there are a number of ways on a regular basis in which we live, whether you can be a Christian or not, as though God does not exist, Right, so this is not aiming at all those atheist department people, Richard Dawkins, all that stuff. This is aiming at the human heart at its own condition. We function as though God does not actually exist or that we don't actually want him to exist, and then we fill in the gap, right? So even though you're here sacrificing your Sunday morning, all of us walk in here feeling there is a, there is a fundamental reality in our hearts where we are actually saying, you know what, God, I don't think you exist. So this is actually for all of us, right? It's not for them. This is for us, right? As this last week, I was at scout camp with my second son, Isaac, and there was a moment where we make tie-dye t-shirts. So what you do is you just like grab the, the middle of the t-shirt, you twist it up, you put rubber bands around, you put tie-dye on it. Our hearts are just like that, actually. Our hearts are all twisted up, and the belief in God that we sprinkle into our lives doesn't fill in all the gaps. <laughs> there is a lot of white blank spaces in our hearts where we say, God, you do not exist. Right? This is why Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? it, it what I'm describing here is that moment where you realize, you, you come into this moment where you say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been a Christian for fill in the blank. One week, one year, 10 years, 50 years, and I still have not gotten this reality. Because there's a part of it where our hearts love to kind of like, we, we drift towards... I can manage my life on my own. God, you don't exist. Yeah, I don't need you. This, this functional atheism category, it runs right through our hearts, it was right through our lives on a regular basis, right? If you think about the ways in which you have faced anxiety in life, right? Now, I'm not denying that there are medical dynamics related to some of these dynamics. But anxiety is often this perspective that God's not going to be able to figure this out for me. So I have to figure it out on my own, Right? Fear of the future, really, it's just imagining a future without God, right? That's, if you have fears about this or that reality, you're basically, that, that is a, 
I don't believe that God is going to be who he is tomorrow or the next day or in whatever cataclysmic event happens, that he still will not be good. That's a functional atheism, that God's not going to be who he says he is in that day. Right? When we, we face workaholism, right? If you're just working like ridiculous hours all the time, you know what? It's a functional atheism that says, God, I don't think that you can handle this or provide for me. I've got, to, I've got to provide for myself or some sort of identity issue where I've got to create my own identity and not, re- not experience the smile of God's presence upon you. Prayerlessness. I put in my notes a little sm- a frowny face next to this one. Prayerlessness is saying, I can figure this out without God. I can do this life without God. God, actually, I don't need your power to be able to fulfill whatever you're calling me to do. God, I, I can pastor your church in my own strength. How many times have I had days as a pastor where I haven't prayed a single minute? Functional atheism as a pastor. I mean, it's my job to be a Christian. What is it for you? Where, where would you say, you know what, there is a functional part of my life where I'm just saying, you know what, God, you don't exist. In my heart of hearts, I'm saying, God, there is no God in this area. Sexuality, work, family, politics, whatever it is. We can be functional atheists across the board. Or even joylessness. Jerry Bridges has this great quote where he says, the joyless, to be joyless is to dishonor God and deny his love and his control over our lives. It's practical atheism. Because if God exists, he's happy about it. And he's happy to have created us. And to be joyless is to basically say, nah. So if that's the bad news, if that's the bad news, we're going to turn now to verses 2 to 5. We're going to look at the I. You might call this the very bad news. In any story, you've got the bad, you think it's bad and then it gets worse, right? Thanos gets all the rings. I'm sorry, I just combined two illustrations. Sauron gets all the rings. Thanos gets all the stones. <laughs> Sorry. Verses 2 to 5. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see, that there, uh, see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people and, as, though, as they eat bread and, they do, um, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bone of him whom camps against him. You, you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Right, this is the eye, God's look. When God looks down, verse 2, God looks down from heaven, he is not impressed. <laughs> Just to put it bluntly. God's not impressed. This actually calls back, if you remember, um, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, back in Genesis 11, where where God, um, there's a story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody says, we are going to build a a monument to how great humanity is, how great we are. We're going to build a huge tower to say how great we are. And the funniest line in that whole story is right in the middle of it. It's actually the very center of the story. Um, God says, I'm going to have to look down to figure out what they're building. You know, you ever... (laughs) I'm going to have to look down on this anthill all the way. I'm way up. God's so big and huge in, 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 in his person and who he is that the highest height of our human ex- achievement, right, 
no matter how far we've gotten to moon or the Mars or whatever, God has to look down, kind of like your mother's look when she knows what's up. You know what I'm talking about? When she's, you know, she sizes you up in a second. That's what God looks down from heaven on a children of man, and he's not impressed. You see, it's not that God derides or hates humanity. He despises human pride. And the experience of all people outside of God's good designs and grace is to always seek after understanding and never arrive at it. Verse 2, right? They seek after understanding and they never get it. The experience of living outside of God's good designs and grace, verse 3, is to fall away and never measure up. You ever feel like you're never able to quite get there? No matter how far along you're in life, I'm never quite measuring up. That's a part of what it means to have a, a broken uh, default system. Verse 3, another part of it, to be unable to say you have absolute pure motives, right? Verse 3, there is none who does good, not even one. I, I just want to acknowledge that even on our best days, we don't exactly have purest motives towards anything, right? You know, like I think about like as a parent, I want my kids to behave, but I... I also just don't want people to think I'm a bad parent, you know? <laughs> that's not a pure motive. Like, that's not like wanting my kids to, like, do their best just because it's what's good for them. It's also selfish and self-centered, isn't it? Right? Verse 4, they have, uh, the, have those who work evil no knowledge that they eat of bread, my people, as they eat bread, and they do not call upon God. We are, God is saying, regularly forgetting his call for justice. We regularly forget how our actions do not promote justice, do not love justice. We do not have designs in our hearts that love to give our lives for other people to promote the justice that other people deserve, right? Verse 5, what does this mean? And there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Have you ever, have you ever walked around feeling like um, have you ever walked around feeling a regular dread, anxiety, nervousness, that just things aren't going to work out? Have you ever just felt like I'm being ripped apart from the inside out, like that I just can't figure out how to keep my life together? That's what this is talking about. That, this, is that, that's, this verse is describing when we live outside of God's good design, our lives are constantly being, our hearts are constantly being dragged over the sandpaper of life. It's constantly being dragged and just being slightly kind of graded against. That's because we live under the eye of God. You see, God will not let us get life on our own terms, right? That's why verse 2, God looks down from heaven. He will not allow you to get life on your own terms because you're using his world to make yourself God. <laughs> God will not allow that. St. Augustine has this great line, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. He looks at us. He wants us to enjoy him. That's why he made us. You exist today. You breathe in air because God has given you mercy to know him 
but he will not let you have your life on your own terms. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Right? We live under the, as Jesus would say at the end of John 3, we live under the wrath of God until we are resting in Jesus. This is what we go back to Romans 3, if you're interested. I'll read this and it'll be on the screen. The Apostle Paul, when he tries to describe what we're talking about, this very plight of humanity, what does it mean to be human? <laughs> this is how he actually quotes from Psalm 53. So we're going to see our verse, verses here in a second. And he draws together all of these verses to drive home this point of the eye and the very bad news. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, here's our psalm, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. They have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips, right? And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He is saying God has given his law, his perfect design and character. He's revealed who he is to the Old Testament Hebrews and they still didn't get it right. And the whole point of that was to say you can't get it right on your own terms. You can't get it right even using the things that God has given you. You will always not build the, the, the thing correctly. I think about like all the Lego sets that my kids, you know, if you ever watched the Lego movie, right? We all, God has given us uh, the, design, uh, the, the, the instructions of how to put this life and put our world and our heart together. But we all think that we're master builders <laughs> and we can build our life on our own terms and kind of make up our own little spaceship hearts that are going to please God. Sorry, that was a kid reference. If you don't get that, I can explain it to you later. The problem goes to the deepest root of who we are in front of this penetrating gaze of God. Right back to Psalm 53. We are all held accountable, as Romans 3 would say, before this God. C.S. Lewis has this great line. In the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. You see, God sees you. He knows what's up. And you will see him one day. And we could stop here and I'll go home and cry in our beds and have a very bad day. But that's not where the psalm ends and that's not where we are left. But it is good to have some self-awareness. As our friends in AA would say, right, we have to do a personal inventory. Or the other, another phrase from AA that I really like, um, our best thinking got us here, right? Your best thinking in life got you exactly all the repercussions that you have experienced in life. And that would be very, very bad news to have to go to God and give an account for that. But I'm eager for us to finish this psalm because there is a story here that we need to finish. There is a gift that we need to finish a story with. 
So we're going to look at verse 6 of Psalm 53, the gift, or you might call it the very, very good news. We've looked at the bad news. We've looked at the very, very bad, very bad news, and now we're looking at the very, very good news of the story. Psalm 53, verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob resort, rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is probably starting out with the very word that we all feel in our own hearts after thinking through this psalm. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I... I know my heart is just as twisted up and I cannot figure out how to get my life in order on a good day. <laughs> God, you see me and all my bad motivations on my worst day. God, I need your help or nothing's changing. And the psalm ends by saying it's going to change and God's in this. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. Right, this is, if you're going to, if you want to flesh this out a little bit, God is saying, I am, going to, I am going to make my name great and explode with joy in a good way, like an atomic bomb, but a good atomic bomb, right? Explode and bless you and save you, which is exactly where Paul, if you, we're going back and forth, I know. Back to Psalm, or Romans 3, right where he finishes. So after he has laid out this whole case against how bad humanity is, but now we find this little word that changes the entire story that changes the entirety of human existence, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, right? So Psalm 53, that's what he's got in view and other things, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They all experience Psalm 53, what we just talked about. They all experience that and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I know propitiation is a big term. Here's what that means. It means the justice and punishment that you deserve being diverted and accepted by another. So imagine, for example, you have just run into the convenience store, at gunpoint robbed the store, and you're running out with all the cash in your hand. The police show up on the scene, and they they stop, stop where you're going. <laughs> and you're just like, nah, bro, you do your best Tom Brady over them. You jump over them, and you're running, and you're running, and you're running. He says, stop, pulls out his gun. You robbed a store? You've robbed God of his glory. You've averted the police, right? You've not done what God says. Your punishment is about to be pulled out in a pistol, trigger pulled, bullet flying, and another police officer jumps in front and takes the bullet in your place and then gives you his position as the police officer to take away your punishment. That's what's in view when the Bible says propitiation. Right? You deserved... God's wrath. You deserve God's judging eye. I deserve it for all my prayerless days as a pastor, not to mention all my other sins in life. But God joyfully has sent his son to take the wrath that we deserve so that then we can receive the smile, redemption, and salvation of God. Right? That's where Paul ends, right? For God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, Jesus Christ, to be received by faith, that this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance and passing over former sins 
it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God will not let things just be swept under the cosmic rug. All of our cosmic treason against God, which is our, our hearts giving a big old fist to God, has been dealt on Jesus so that when we look to Jesus, we have the eyes of our hearts open so that we can see him and see, God has saved me. He has given me his grace so that now all the things that would cause fear and inner anxiety and deep despair and struggle and pain in my heart have all been put on Jesus so that now I get the look of God, of smile, of delight. All right, if we were to look at Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, Jesus... Jesus on a cross, seeing all these people denying that he is God, crucifying him as though he weren't God, prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is that not often our own experience of our hearts? I don't understand the way I am. Jesus does. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understands who seek after God. There was one man, there was one man who understood God. There was one man who sought after God. There was one man who did good, right? Psalm 53, verse 3, they have all fallen away, just like Jesus' friends. Together they have become corrupt, like Judas. There is no one who does good, not even one, except that one who looks at you. And sees all the ways in which the very bad news of God would cause terror for your dying day. He died for you. He died to save you from that judging eye of God. So that now when God looks at you, he sees all of who Jesus is. And delights in everything about you. You see, there is a great difference in Christianity versus all the other religions of the world. All the other religions of the world are man trying to work their way to please God. And this psalm lay, lays out the playing, levels out the playing field. Nobody can work their way towards God. So, for example, Buddha, last words of Buddha, work hard to gain your own salvation. That's how Buddha ended his life. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Jesus, on the cross, as he is accomplishing our salvation, what are his last words? It is finished. There is nothing that you can do to cause God to save you, but God has done everything to change your heart, to renew your heart, to change everything about you on his own terms. Not because he has to, but because he wants to, right? This, if you're talking about like, what is the gospel message? What we've been talking about is the gospel, and the gospel is true for you if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus yet, or you're thinking about it. And this is true for you if you are the, a member and on the paid staff of the church. This is for all Christians, because all Christians realize all people know that there is not us versus them. This is we need Jesus. There is a we versus him. And he has changed the whole story. So that now it is finished as a proclamation over you for all your sins and failures and weaknesses and ugh, of life. So now, verse 2, if we were to take this with the gospel in view and flip it, how does God view you? God looks down on you right now. How does God view you right now? Could I provide a little bit of a list for you? 
Maybe we get to soar our hearts into Jesus because I want us to think about this gospel story, not just kind of like, whew, I got out of some bad news. No, the good news is that there is more that you could possibly have be said about you in Jesus that could ever, you could possibly imagine. One of the reasons we get eternity in Jesus is so that we can continue to uncover this. So here is how God views you in Jesus. God says to you, you are a brand new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. There is no longer sin as your master, for you have, because of me, in Jesus, died to sin and are now alive to me. Romans 6.11 and Ephesians 2.4-5. In Jesus, God says to you, you are no longer condemned or judged in sin. Romans 8.1-2. In Jesus, you are cleansed by his blood and made pure in Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 and 9. In Jesus, God says to you, you now bear all of the perfect holiness and righteousness of Jesus better than anything that you could have put on your resume for God. Romans 4, 5. God says to you, now in Jesus, you have my spirit and now I am your father, not anybody else, not any, any other name. You get my last name. What's your last name? God's That's what God says to you. Now God says to you, you have my spirit. You're not left to your own heart's devices to figure out your life on your own terms. <laughs> then to be a fool. Now you have my spirit to guide you in all truth. Now you have my spirit to know me. Now you have my spirit to love me. Now you have my spirit to empower you to obey me and to walk in my good designs and grace. Just so you have the reference on that, John 16, 7 and 13, Acts 1, 8, Galatians 5, 16. And God promises, I will transform you to be just like Jesus, slowly, daily, persistently, even when you're getting dragged along up the escalator. God is making you to be just like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Exodus 33, 18. God says to you, I will make you to be like Jesus when he appears. So regardless of how you feel like between today and when you die and see Jesus face to face, or he cracks the sky open and steps right through between this day and that day, when that day appears, when Jesus shows up, he will make you on the spot just like Jesus, 1 John 3, 2, Romans 8, 29. And on that day, he will come to you in your seat and every tear that you have cried and the pain and trials of life he will look you in the eye and wipe away the tear. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And between this day and that day, you will have the Holy Spirit in you, giving you a confidence and assurance of his unending, undying, bubbling up, never ceasing, always flowing, unending love for you because of the Son. And that love for you will be outside the reach of all of your enemies. John 14, 3. And, to top it all off, God will use you as a priest to make his name and this grace and knowledge of who he is known to your neighbors, to your family, to everybody else around you. <laughs> what an incredible, for, by the way, First Peter 2, 9. <laughs> What an incredible way to end the story. Right? One of my favorite places to always end my heart and to preach the gospel to myself, to say this is who Jesus is. Ephesians 1. I don't know if you ever remember Ephesians 1. Here I am trying to find it because I don't know my Bibles. Ephesians 1, verse 3. 
Here is this great declaration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is a happy God who has been happy to write this story to save us from our own deceitful hearts and to make us happy in him. That's the translation of that verse, right? He's happy about it, and he wants you in his song, and he doesn't want you to be left to this whole Psalm 53, denying God, not knowing God, living as a practical atheist, whatever it is, in your own hearts. He has written a happy story to make you happy in himself because he's happy to make enemies who have treacherous hearts sing the joyful song of his glorious grace, which is why verse 6 and Psalm 53 ends this way. Maybe we feel it more deeply now. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. That's not just me. That's you too. Let Israel be glad. Right? And let's have it no other way. Let's have it no other way than God does all of this happy news of redemption, all of this happy salvation on his own happy terms to make us happy in him. And let's not try to insert ourselves. <laughs> let's just receive. This is what he's done for us. See, we read this psalm and we're like, man, Psalm 53, we live out the proof of how drastically horrible we are. And yet, everything we need in Psalm 53, God has given us in the story of Jesus. Let's pray and thank him for it. God, we are so grateful for how you've saved us in Jesus. We're so grateful that this psalm is not, does not end at verse 5. God, we are grateful that Psalm 53 ends with verse 6 of your salvation, which has saved us in Jesus, changed us, and we receive your smile because you are a happy God. So God, I pray that as we continue to worship you and enjoy your presence with us, that you would enliven our hearts. Would we have happy hearts because you've saved us from our hearts that would reject you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.